Today's reading is from Jeremiah 29, 1, 4 through 7. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but... Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you again, Sherry. Wow, it is totally wet. Jim was telling the truth. It's very wet up here. Uh, so my notes are going to get saturated, so this whole message will be off the cuff, I think. Um, Todd Teller's uh, shirt is actually also completely wet, so Todd is a very aggressive baptizer. Um, my name is Scott, and along with Todd and many others, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Pres, and I'm about 70% of the time up here. Uh, making an attempt to explain the scripture of the day on Sundays, and it's my privilege to do that. Uh, I want to just draw our attention to a couple of announcements uh, first before before I dive into this text from, from Jeremiah. First of all, the black notebook, as always, please pass that on. Uh, let us know you're here by writing your name and and indicating your needs if you have them so that we can know you're here and know that we can serve you. Um, so here's the first key announcement this week. September in Nashville for us can only mean one thing, and that is the Party on the Lawn. Uh, Party on the Lawn is CPC's most anticipated event, both by our community and by our surrounding community as well. We had about two to 3,000 people uh, here last year on our lawn with food trucks and games and kickball and inflatables and all sorts of other things. So this year we are going to uh, we are going to add to the mix a full-size Ferris wheel uh, out on our front lawn, and our risk reduction people are terrified, but we're going to do it anyway because it's a trustworthy, safe Ferris wheel. So uh, invite your friends. Bring your neighbors. That's why it's there. There's also going to be a unique service schedule. There's going to be one 9.30 in the morning service. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to try to cram everybody in here, and we'll have a little overflow available as well. We'll add seats to the back of the sanctuary, break every fire code imaginable. Uh, but there will be one service, 9.30 in the morning, on September 5. Uh, so we'll keep telling you that, but mark the date. Uh, details, more details in your bulletin and also on the website. And then next, just a reminder that time is running out for Connect Group registration. It is part of our vision for every person in our church to have at least 
five people that they could generally, genuinely call friends, people who know you, you know them and their stories, you're in life together. Connect groups are our primary on-ramp for that, uh, especially for those of you who aren't ready to say that you have five close friends here. Connect groups are the on-ramp for that. So I want to encourage your registration today uh, out in the hallway. There's also information in your bulletin there. Uh, so, uh, all that being said, let's, let's get into Jeremiah. So this is the first of about seven or eight messages that we're, uh, we're, calling, we're calling the series All In, and it's, it's about the vision uh, for our church that our elders, along with our deacons and several advisors, uh, all agreed to and, and, and sort of put our stake in the ground for the next 20 years. And so we're unrolling that, we're going to explain and articulate um, you know, that decision over, over the course of, of a couple of months now. Um, but what I'd like to do just to start the series is to remind us all how we have here at Christ Pres sort of understood the universal job description for every Christian everywhere, and that is to leave it better than you found it. So that means when we leave this place, we go into restaurants and neighborhoods and, and, and homes and places of work, places of play, and so on. And, and we endeavor to take the light of Christ into every environment in our city and throughout the world to whatever degree God gives us uh, an ability and on-ramp and the capacity and resources to do that. This is precisely what they were saying back in the Old Testament times. And it's right here in verse 7. Uh, where Jeremiah says to the exiles in Babylon, and I'll get to the significance of that in a moment, but he says, seek the welfare of the city uh, which I have called you into exile. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar's oppressive Babylon. And he says, instead of posturing yourself as the enemy of the, the king and the city that has brought a lot of misery into your lives, Serve it, bless it, pray for it, desire, chase after its flourishing. The Hebrew word for welfare is shalom. That, that, that means all aspects of peace and plenty. Tim Keller has described the Hebrew concept of shalom this way, flourishing in every dimension, socially, economically, physically, and spiritually. So, so in our August meeting uh, with uh, the elders and, 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 and deacons and, and advisors, we, we essentially uh, uh, approved and, 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 and said yes to this vision. It's up on the screen right behind me. As a family united in Christ and led by Scripture, we at Christ Presbyterian Church exist as partakers in a movement of God's kingdom that offers spiritual life, public faith, mercy and justice, and the integration of faith and work to the people, communities, institutions, and churches of greater Nashville and through Nashville to the world. So that's what we're committing ourselves to from this point forward. And if you've been around for a while, if you've been through CPC 101, if you've been to a newcomer's dessert, you've heard a lot of this language before. You've heard a lot of these concepts, and many of you are participating in a lot of these things already. So what's different? So what's new? What's different and what's new is the specific strategy and approach and, 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 and resource de deployment uh, decisions that, that, that have been made that we will be unrolling for the next uh, eight weeks or so. But basically, here's the deal. We have to figure out what it means to have a life-giving posture toward a secularizing city. 
Are you aware that Nashville is changing? Are you aware that, that Nashville is becoming a lot more like ancient Babylon as time goes by than the buckle of the Bible belt? We are not the buckle of the Bible belt anymore. Chattanooga is. And the New York Times and the LA Times have both referred to Nashville as the third coast because there's this massive migration that's happening. You may have noticed it in your own neighborhoods and in your own places of work and play and those sorts of things. There's a massive migration from cities like Washington, D.C., New York City, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and so on. Very progressive, very secular, very forward-moving, culture-making cities here. About 100 people a day move to Nashville. Our population is supposed to double within the next 15 to 20 years. Mayor Carl Dean just a few uh, uh, years ago reminded us that we are the seventh fastest growing city in the United States right now. Things are changing. We're not being brought into exile, but some think exile may be coming to us. We are a city in transition. Religious pluralism is becoming more and more the story of Nashville. If you drive from here to 12 South, for instance, and some of you passed these on the way here this morning, you will notice, perhaps, an Islamic center, a Unitarian Universalist congregation, a Baha'i temple, several synagogues, a Hindu temple, a Latter-day Saints Mormon temple, and an atheist church that incidentally meets on the same property that our in-town congregation meets on. This is where our city is headed. There's a new public truth in the Western Hemisphere. And Christians of the historic creeds and confessions and scriptures do not speak that public truth. There's been a shift in the moral majority in the West. It used to be the religious right. Now the moral majority is the secular left. And there's a new doctrine and a new public truth that's come along with that. And so historic Christian teachings on things like sexuality, sin, the final judgment, the exclusive claims of Jesus to be the way and the truth and the life and nobody comes to the Father but through him, these viewpoints are not just seen as weird anymore. They're actually increasingly being seen as evil. That's the world that our world is becoming. How do we respond if, in fact, the exile comes to us. There are two points today. The first is three paths, three potential paths we could take as believers in a changing context, and then one audacious dream, where I'll roll out a little bit of what, what, what we're looking toward in the next 20 years. Three paths. First of all, the historical context here. It's right there in verse 1. This is a letter from the prophet Jeremiah sent to the Jewish exiles who have been taken into captivity by the secular king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Now, there are three ways that the Jews could respond. One is by compromising. And this is what the Babylonian agenda is. The Babylonian agenda isn't, isn't for you to chuck your religion out the door. It's just wherever your religion and, 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 and the power of the state collide, pledge your loyalty to the state and not to your religion. In other words, you, you, you can hold on to your faith. You can hold on to your beliefs. Just keep it private. Just keep it to yourself. And by all means, don't be a fanatic about it in the public spaces. 
And so in those days, whenever a superpower like Babylon would conquer a smaller nation like Israel, rather than try, continuing to subjugate the, those that they have, have brought into exile and into slavery, they instead tried to win them over. You know, and, and, and the message was something like this from Nebuchadnezzar to Israel. We know it's hard that we, you know, sort of took away your old way of life and we took you out of your homes and we brought you into, into the great superpower of, of Babylon. But you're going to discover over time that life is actually going to be richer and better here for you than it was where you came from. And, and here's how it's going to work. We're going to give you the best jobs. We're going to give you the access to the best education. We're going to give you access to all of the intellectual, vocational, social, and spiritual war spiritual resources of the cultural epicenter of your time, Babylon. And you see this. If you go into uh, the book of Daniel, Daniel was one of the Jewish exiles along with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had been brought into the captivity of, of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. And it says there that Daniel had become skilled in literature and wisdom and he had been promoted along with his three friends toward the top of King Nebuchadnezzar's org chart. So Nebuchadnezzar, over time, is, is, is making his best attempt to win these Jewish men over. Don't you see? You've got, you've got the best jobs. You've got access to the, to the king himself. You've got the best education. Isn't life so much better here than it was back in that little old podunk town, Jerusalem, that you came from? Isn't this more progressive, you know, open-minded belief system that, 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 that we've brought you into so much better than that narrow, culturally regressive, uh, personally oppressive, narrow-minded ethical system that you came out of with those Ten Commandments and the you know, Judeo, you know, you know, the Jewish you know, history and that sort of thing? So the king's doctrine is this. Have your beliefs, but don't be fanatical about them and keep those beliefs to yourself. The king's doctrine was the same doctrine that is gaining steam in the Western Hemisphere right now. Expressive individualism. The sovereignty of the self to determine the self's own path of right, wrong, morality, truth, beauty, and so on. The sovereignty of the individual self and the one unpardonable sin in, in, in which the king's doctrine is expressive individualism is to deny the king's doctrine of expressive individualism. And we, we have this, you know, these two worlds colliding in Daniel chapter 3 where Nebuchadnezzar sets up a golden statue. It's a monument to himself. It, 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 it's, it's what he wants to be his legacy. And what that statue represented was Nebuchadnezzar's supposed generous spirit of, of, of declaring that all belief systems are valid in my Babylon. That you believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. You live how you want to live. I'll live how I want to live. That's the public truth. But Daniel and his friends ran into an issue there because Yahweh had declared, you know, since the beginning of time that Yahweh is the one true and living God. And, and, and when they went public with that, when they said, oh, king, we cannot submit to, to the Babylonian doctrine. The Babylonian inclusivity then became exposed as actually a veiled 
exclusivity and, 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 and really disdain and scorn and exclusivity against those who weren't as inclusive as the virtuous Babylon. Deep hypocrisy is exposed and a great cost was paid by those who declared Yahweh, not Nebuchadnezzar, ultimately is our king. They got thrown in a lion's den. They got thrown in a big fire pit. Compromise was what Babylon wanted to just take your religion a little bit less seriously. Don't be a fanatic about it. Keep it to yourself. Live and let live. Be polite. Don't take your truth public. And it's all good. But Daniel and his friends said, we can't do that. You know, just like the, the apostles you said, we cannot stop preaching the name of Christ in Caesar's Rome. Because Jesus is Lord in our world, and they got punished for it as well. The second possible option or path in a secularizing culture is to judge and to wait and to hope that Nebuchadnezzar's and his cronies will get theirs, right? It's to hold on to the doctrine that people are going to hell and to be glad about it. Other people, of course. And to this... Jeremiah says in verse 8, Do not let the false prophets deceive you who lie in my name. And what the false prophets were saying, it's in chapter 28. The false prophets were saying, Don't you worry your weary little heads, Jewish community, Israelites. God is going to destroy Babylon, and he's going to do it soon. And so the false prophets were promising a return to the good old days. A return to those days when you, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were the moral majority. We're going to get back there. You wait and see. God's going to come in and take care of this. And Jeremiah says, the Lord, Thus saith the Lord, these false prophets are telling lies in my name. Pharisee culture predates the New Testament, in other words. Pharisee culture says the problem with the world is other people. The problem with the world is these Babylonians. The problem with the world is, is you know, Nineveh, if you're Jonah. The problem with the world is the secular left. It's always other people. And the solution to that problem is the judgment of God. So Pharisee culture also post-dates the New Testament. You know, today, I think Jim mentioned earlier in the service, today is the 15th anniversary of 9-11. And I'll never forget a moral majority leader getting in front of a national microphone and saying these words. The pagans, abortionists, feminists, the gays and lesbians who are actively trying to make theirs an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, the people for the American way, all of them who've tried to secularize America, I point my finger in their face and I say, you helped this happen. So how did we get to this from a jihadist attack that was decided and planned on the other side of the world? And all of a sudden, it's, it's people here. It's, it's all these named groups. They're at fault. There are two reasons to reject this sort of moral majority approach to cultural pressure. Number one is it's a failed project. Do we realize that by now? That to judge and scorn and, and, and to punish 
and, and to be glad that there's a hell and glad that other people are going there, that is actually a failed project that, 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 that does not resemble the heart of Jesus. Us against them is not in the paradigm for the way that the people of Jesus are to interact with and engage the world around them. You know, there are all these reports in the last few years about how millennial generation is sort of leaving Christianity, leaving the church. And to some degree that's true, but, you know, to another degree, some, some of the most faithful Christians that I know are of the millennial generation, including my two daughters, and, or at least my oldest daughter is a millennial, youngest is whatever the next generation is. But, but what millennials who are leaving the faith of their parents have consistently said is that the number one reason why they're departing the faith that their parents raised them in is the conflation of Christianity with right-wing politics. Millennials have had it. And they've called the bluff of that false belief system that, that the acquisition of power and, and coercion of an entire culture into the prevailing moral majority mindset it's a failed project, and it's not the heart of Jesus. Now, the millennial generation that swung political left is also at risk of their own children departing the faith that they raised their children in if they become the new moral majority only from the left side of the ledger. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Jesus has a different vision for the way that his kingdom is meant to engage the kingdoms of this world. The other reason to repudiate this whole approach is that Jesus said to repudiate it. Luke chapter 9, remember the Samaritan villages the disciples were passing through, and the Samaritan villages were not being hospitable to Jesus and his disciples, and they were rejecting and resisting the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the kingdom of Jesus. And the disciples looked at Jesus and said, should we finish them off, Lord? Should we call fire down from heaven and judge them and punish them and finish them off and show them who's boss? And it says that Jesus looked at his disciples and rebuked them. He looked at his disciples and rebuked them. The only remaining alternative in an exile scenario is to bless and to serve. Verse 4 and following, Thus says the Lord to all the exiles I have sent, the Lord I have sent into exile from Jerusalem. There's purposefulness in you being a minority. There's purposefulness from the courts of heaven in you being an oppressed minority even. God can even work through that just like God can work through a king on a cross or a baby king in a manger. Thus says the Lord to all the exiles I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, from the Bible Belt into the secular city. Build your houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, get married, have children, encourage your children to do the same. Multiply in Babylon, don't decrease, seek the shalom the comprehensive flourishing of the city of Babylon where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. He is saying this, that secular city that is shaped by people who do not believe as you do and who punish you for holding true to your convictions and going public with your beliefs that city that threatens your religious freedom, that city that's creating division between you and your children, wish it well. Work and pray for its flourishing. For when it flourishes, you too shall flourish. 
So Frederick, Frederick Buechner, along these lines, said this, it is only by journeying for the world's sake, even when the world bores and sickens and scares you half to death, that little by little we start to come alive because journeying for the world's sake is the only road worth traveling. Jesus did not say, just love your friends. He didn't say, just love the people who are like you and believe like you and vote like you and make the same kind of money you do and run in the same social circles as you. He didn't say that. He said, if that's what you do, you're not really expressing love. You're just doing what what people who don't believe in God at all do. But here's what will demonstrate to the world that you actually belong to me, that you're tethered organically to me. Love your enemies and pray for and bless those who persecute you and say all kinds of false and awful things about you because of me. Then you will be children of your Father in heaven, Jesus says. In other words, I'm not calling you to be the best kinds of friends to your friends. That's easy. That's easy as pie. I'm calling you to be the best kinds of enemies. I'm calling you to love Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon better than Nebuchadnezzar himself loves Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. And this is what brings us to the one audacious dream. You know, here's the dream. Here's what, what, what the elders of Christ Presbyterian Church said together just this past month in August. What would it look like to actually believe and function as if Jesus was right when he said it's more blessed to give than it is to take? That it's actually more life-giving for us if we decidedly put our stake in the ground that we are going to be the kind of community that exists not for ourselves and not for the sake of our own comfort and not for the sake of our own security, and not for the sake of our own rights. But instead, we exist for the flourishing of the people, communities, institutions, and churches of greater Nashville and through Nashville the world. What if? You know, St. Augustine wrote this magnificent, bodacious volume called The City of God. And basically, Augustine's thesis is that the story of history is the story of two cities. It's a tale of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. In the city of man, here is how I operate. If I'm living uh, out of the prevailing um, you know, cultural norm of the city of God, this is how I operate. My chief purpose in life, the reason I get up in the morning, is to feed my inner Nebuchadnezzar. My life purpose is to build statues in my own honor. My life's purpose is to be the king of my own story and to look to all of you to be supporting actors in me being the king of my own story. And if you refuse to be supporting actors in the story of me being the king, then I will punish you, I will compare myself to you, I will compete with you, all to protect the monument that I am seeking to build and protect and preserve for myself. That's life in the city of man. Life in the city of God is the polar opposite of that. There is a king, but, but, but the king is Jesus. And he is the hero and the king of the story. And all of us, collectively and individually, are supporting actors, not just actors, but participants in his story 
and his mission of loving people and places and things to life. He comes to make his blessings flow. We're going to sing this in the Advent season. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Maybe you could tweak that a little bit. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the church is found. That's his vision for his people. To make his blessings flow as far as the church is found. Because wherever the church and the curse that's been pronounced over creation, over people and places, things, wherever the church and, and, and the curse collide, things are left better than they were in the first place. That's Jesus' vision for us. N.T. Wright put it this way, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That means when we distribute, when we disperse, when we diaspora out of this place today, and, and we go to the places where we live and work and play and so on, we take the light of God. We take foretastes of the new heaven and new earth that's to come into those different places. And by virtue of our presence, that place is meant to be more life-giving because we are part of it. Leslie Newbigin put it this way, the mission of the church is to be a radioactive fallout, which is not lethal, but life-giving. That means we go into the world as Jesus did, full of truth, not compromise, and full of grace toward our neighbors, not judgment. So Jesus called this colonization the city on a hill. He said to his church, to his people, you are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. What Jesus was getting at is this, that the citizens of God's city, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, inspired by the mission of Jesus himself, loved to life by the one who died and is risen and will come again. Jesus' vision is that now we, as citizens of God's city, go out into the city of man and be the best, most life-giving citizens of the city of man. That means the sex trade dies a slow death, but maybe even hopefully a fast death because Christians are in this city. That means that even though Tennessee is the most opium and heroin addicted state in the union, that addiction over time dies a death because Christians are here. Business people, entrepreneurs, capital investors, healthcare people, addiction specialists working together to obliterate that soul-sucking substance known as opium. And the story goes on. We serve the world not in spite of our beliefs, but because of our beliefs. We love Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon better than Nebuchadnezzar loves Babylon, not in spite of our beliefs, but because of them. See, the gospel... We've always known that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for Christians, good news for people who believe in Jesus. But if the gospel is working not only in us, but through us and out from us, then the gospel should also be good news for people around us, for people whose lives are touched by our lives, who don't and maybe never will believe in Jesus. Of course, our hope is the whole city would come alive to Christ, but even if not, 
the quality of life for everybody should rise if Christians live in a city. For everybody. That's why in Acts chapter 2, it said the early Christians, even though they had a really, really weird set of beliefs, that the hope of the world rests on the shoulders of a man who died on a trash heap under the Roman Caesar, lived a good part of his adult life in poverty. You know, his parents were so poor, they were from this obscure hick town called Nazareth, and they were so poor that they couldn't even afford a room to, 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 to give birth to him. The hope of the world rests on his shoulder. Those are weird beliefs. Born of a virgin? Really? And yet, the surrounding world, the, 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 the cities, looked at the quality and the beauty and the life-giving nature of the presence of Christians in their cities and said there's something to that. It says in Acts chapter 2 that the, the early Christians were enjoying the favor of all the people. Because they're leaving the world better than they found it. Rodney Stark is a historian who wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and, and he, he pinpoints especially first and second century Greco-Roman Empire, where the plagues were, were destroying people and there was no cure. And, 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 and Stark refers to an eyewitness account of, of an early Roman citizen who commented about how the citizens of Rome, for fear of contagion, would put their own relatives out on the streets so nobody else would get sick and die. And who was it that swept into the street? But, but, but the people of Jesus, who took those sick pagan neighbors of theirs into their own home, oftentimes, all the time at the risk of their lives and sometimes at the cost of their own lives. Because in the city of God, this is how it works. It's not your life in exchange for mine. It's mine in exchange for yours. You know, in the, the, this is a paraphrase of what the first century Roman citizens said. Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty. They took care of sick Christians and of sick pagans. And by the, by, by, by the third century AD, the fabric of the Roman Empire was transformed and most people had converted to Christianity in Rome. Even under Nebuchadnezzar-like, Caesar-like oppressive conditions. You know, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, if you read history you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. In other words, a bit of a reversal of that, you know, you're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Actually, the more heavenly minded you are, the more zeroed in you are on the new heaven and the new earth, the more earthly good you will be, not only to your Christian neighbors, but to your non-Christian neighbors. Lewis goes on, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, that they become so ineffective in this one. And yet, there are some really shining, wonderful examples as well. If we look down the corridors of history, any progress you see in the world of science, healthcare, mercy and justice, abolition of slavery, civil rights, education, stop there for a minute. Did you know every Ivy League university except for one was founded by Christian ministers and or Christian lay people? Every last one of them. So was Vanderbilt, so was Belmont, so was Lipscomb. The arts and literature, anywhere that you've seen progress over the corridors of history in these and other fields, Christians have been right there in the dead center of the activity. You know, more recently, Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times, a decidedly secular man, and he's, he's written like this a lot about evangelical Christians, which I'm very thankful for. A secular observation about evangelical Christian life 
Christoph from the New York Times says, on average, religious Americans, specifically Christian Americans, donate far more to charity and volunteer far more time than secular Americans, than we secular Americans do. That's the end game for the city on a hill that Jesus talked about. That non-Christians take notice of the king and his kingdom, right? Let your light shine before men that they may see the visibility of your good works and that the net result of that would be that they glorify your Father in heaven. Just as Nebuchadnezzar did when he saw the boldness and conviction of Daniel and his three friends and when he saw the, the miraculous hand of the Lord delivering those young faithful men from the mouth of the lion and from the fire of the furnace. You know, Nebuchadnezzar then got coercive in a different way, and he said, there's a new moral majority now. Anybody who doesn't bow to the God of these guys, I'll throw them in the furnace. Oh, good motive, bad application. What is our community, Christ Presbyterian's unique contribution going to be? So I'm just going to look at this highlighted portion of our bulletin here, and I've got a couple more remarks, and then we're going to go to the table. Last paragraph. We're starting with the end in mind. Right there in your bulletin. We'll have it. Take this home. Marinate in it. Ask your questions over time. Because God's kingdom is much greater than a single church, it says, we will pray and work for the flourishing of all people and not just our people, of all churches and not just our church, of all cities and not just our city, and of all nations and not just our nation. We will do this chiefly by making disciples, equipping leaders, creating and sharing content, and starting new like-minded congregations, including cross-denominational and multi-ethnic ones throughout greater Nashville and across the globe, because our city is a strategic hub, Nashville, for multiple spheres of impact. We will expect any movement of God's kingdom in greater Nashville to also extend beyond Nashville to the world. We will pursue and embrace opportunities to share our resources and capital, whether spoken, written, creative, financial, relational, professional, or otherwise, toward Jesus' vision to bless and heal the world. As we do this, we will celebrate wherever, whenever, and through whomever God chooses to grow his kingdom. And never under any circumstances will we concern ourselves with who gets the attention or the credit. Our task is to advance his fame and glory and not our own, for it is from him and to him and through him that are all things. Amen. That's, that's the end game of our dream for a better tomorrow. And it starts right here and it starts right at this table where we seek to destroy any monument, any statue that we are seeking to build for ourselves and unto ourselves, either personally or collectively. We will organize our lives, we will organize our church, our resources, our energy around the king and the kingdom. The key phrase in the paragraph that I just read to you is this, shalom, flourishing for all and not just our people, cities, nations, and churches. And there's a subtle, covert repudiation of one aspect of the Nashville culture in here. Nashville church culture is incredibly competitive, and we're not going to participate in that. We're not going to look at the Christians in Nashville as market share. We're going after people who don't know Jesus and who don't have a church. Those are the people we're targeting, and for the rest of the population, we're seeking to bless other churches. 
and never to compare or to compete. We're not interested in being an it church where all the buzz is. That's not one of our goals. We are supporting actors in Jesus's mission here, and we are supporting actors also in Jesus' mission through other church communities in our city. We will openly celebrate what's going on in other churches. One example, Church of the City, right down the road, interdenominational church. Started about the time that I got here. They now have four locations. Today is their Vision Sunday. They're going to start, they're going to talk about launching more locations throughout Nashville. Thousands of people there. We celebrate that. We don't get jealous of that. We pray for more of that for them. We don't get envious of those sorts of things. Emmanuel Church, pastored by my friend Ray Ortland, my predecessor here. I don't know if you've been to Emmanuel Church, but it's an incredibly life-giving community right there in, in, in Sylvan Park, which is swiftly emerging as one of the most strategic missional neighborhoods in all of Nashville. We celebrate that. We champion and support other churches. I don't know if you've never, ever noticed this on our website. We have a website, the top of the page is hashtag same team. We recommend all sorts of churches in Nashville that you can go to if this is not your place. If you don't like Christ Pres, if somehow it doesn't connect with you, you can't find yourself following Jesus here best, then we're recommending all sorts of other churches on our website and we will bless you as you go. I don't want you to go. Hate to see you go, but we're not gonna fight you and we're not gonna get jealous. Because we're all the same team. We're, we're going to generously share. 40-ish percent of our resources will go out. We have a rapidly progressing goal to, to spend upwards of a million dollars every year on starting new congregations, of, of planting new colonies in new neighborhoods in Nashville and abroad. We want to generously share. Nashville Institute for Faith and Work is not just for Christ Presbyterian. It's for all of the churches of Nashville. Gotham Fellows, first class, had 13 churches represented. And, and, and it, we consider it a failure if, if any of those other church participants end up coming to our church through Gotham. Are, the, the whole vision of that is for those people to go into their own churches and spur the imagination of their own communities about what a faith and work, faith and work movement in their churches could be. I'm almost done, I promise. Missy Wallace is serving as a consultant uh, as she's becoming a recognized entity in the faith and work space. Our staff resources, Bob Bradshaw, becoming nationally recognized by many as, 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 as a masterful turnaround specialist in, in cultivating a healthy, life-giving, high-trust staff culture. He's consulting with a lot of churches right now or has consulted in the last couple of years with a lot of churches larger churches that are going through transition and struggling internally, and he's breathing health into those situations. We share our children's resources. Casey Kramer and his team have consulted with other churches who want to come in and see what they're doing. David Filson, seminary faculty member. Russ Ramsey about to release an amazing book about affliction. And part of the plan, too, is to plant new colonies. The idea is to have 12 Christ Presbyterian church locations around greater Nashville. So in town, multiply that by, by 12 or 11 or 12. That's what we're looking at, God willing, in the next 20 years. But not only that, West End is planting in Germantown. We want to get behind that as well. 
Covenant Presbyterian Church is planting a church through Matt Bradley in Brentwood, right down the road, a couple miles from us. I asked Matt if he wanted to use our gym because we are so committed to not being turfy, so committed to that. We want to get behind these brothers and these sisters and these other movements in Nashville. Thomas Hunter, Ronnie Mitchell, our African-American pastor friends, very, you know, wonderful friends of our community uh, serving North Nashville, serving East Nashville. We want to get behind the efforts that, that, that they're doing, you know, to, 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 to confer and draw out the dignity that, 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 that's in their communities, and, and their communities are tired. Their communities aren't experiencing the upward trajectory and mobility of Nashville. In fact, they're paying the price for it. So we want to get behind that. You know, the end game is bottom line this. Dethrone every oppressive king and not be slaves to any oppressive king, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or whether it's the king that we're trying to establish in ourselves. That Jesus might increase, that we might decrease, that we might expire so that the Lord and the Lord alone would have the the golden monument to himself and to his glory in the end. In that spirit, I apologize, I took an extra 10 minutes. We're going to be here a little bit longer. We're going to linger.